scripture reading today is from Matthew 5:21 to 26. You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. God, thank you for this place, and thank you for um, each one of us that is able to be here today. And I pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would take any distractions out of the way. Um, that you would remove our pride, that you would remove our fears, and that you'd meet each of us where we're sitting and um, help us to hear what you're speaking to our hearts and that we would know the truth and that we would believe it in our hearts and that we would walk it out. Um, that we'd be transformed from the inside out individually and as a community as we walk together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are um, continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount, and um, really what we've seen up to this point as we've been slowly working our way through this is that Jesus is describing here a, a radically new kingdom that he's come to bring about. And it's a, what makes it so new is that it's a kingdom of the heart, uh, a kingdom that really doesn't approach God like any other religion, which tends to be outside in. You know, what things do I have to do? What things do I have to obey? Uh, what paths do I have to follow? Uh, what dragons do I have to slay? Give me something that tells me what I have to do to appease the gods and get in. But God says, no, I, I want a relationship with you of intimacy where we pursue God with a loving passion rather than a fearful uh, worry about trying to please him. And we do that because he's already pursued us and made us his children. He's pursued us in love. And like any good relationship, that relationship is based on love, not law. Um, of course, that doesn't mean in love there's not also law. Even your loving relationship with your spouse um, has certain rules, right? Certain vows, certain promises that you make. Um, but there is a law that we have to keep here. But listen, the whole point of Jesus coming was to obey the law and keep it in our place and to pay the penalty for our disobedience in our place so that we could be reconciled with him, so that we could be brought back into relationship and intimacy and, and community with God, which means that we all now obey the law of God out of love instead of out of duty or trying to earn something from God. We obey because our new hearts really long to be like Jesus. We, and we obey because it's the way that we experience community with God again. Now, that's why Jesus, I think, starts this sermon with this basic premise that we saw, that citizens of my kingdom recognize that they have nothing but an absolute poverty of spirit. 
he starts his whole sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And see, listen, religious people are working on developing a pride of spirit. Look how well I've obeyed. Look at all the sins I've avoided. Look at all the people I'm serving. And see, that's, that's all about building a spiritual reputation that we in our culture, I think, sort of sanctify it by calling it a testimony. You know, look at me, look how good I am, but it's still all about me and my performance. Trying to prove myself to appease the, appease the gods, which is what pagan religions have really always been about down through the years. I think we just developed an evangelical Christian version of it. But you see here, Jesus comes along and he says, my kingdom is not about trying to buy your way in from the outside in. He says, I, I deal in reality and there is a God and he is holy and I have designed you for a purpose and you were made for a relationship with me and you can no more buy your way into my intimacy than you can buy your spouse's love with flowers and candy. I demand holiness. That's what he says. But sin has totally broken you and you're simply unable to be in a right relationship with me. Because no matter how hard you try, you can never be good enough. You can never say and do all the right things. You are hopelessly flawed. And so you need a savior. You need a rescuer to come and do what you could never do. To live the life that you could never live. To pay for what your penance could never purchase. And so really what we've seen up to this point is that Jesus is distinguishing between two radically different approaches to the law. See, the Pharisees' approach was, hey, let's narrow the definitions of what God meant when he said this and that so that we can make it manageable. Let's make it something we can actually do. Even if we have to work really hard, it can be done. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I intended when I gave you these laws originally. They were meant to define a holy God and what living in community with me looks like. And as a result, they were meant to expand, not contract to every corner of your life in order to show you how hopelessly and desperately you need a Messiah to come and rescue you who would pay that penalty. Now, Jesus says, that's what my kingdom is all about. Now, last week, Lyle gave us a good overview of all this. And starting this week, I want to go back and, and deal with each one of these um, illustrations, if you will, separately and dig in to see what Jesus is teaching us. And so we come to the first of his illustrations in verses 21 and 22, where he says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And see, when Jesus says here, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, he's not contradicting what Moses had said in the Old Testament and saying, you know, here's what Moses said, but I'm changing things with the new covenant. No, no, what he was actually doing, he was contrasting what he just said back in verse 20, that unless your righteousness is greater than these super religious Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. And see, he's saying that they have taken the command against the taking of another human life, and they've reduced it to a manageable application, the, the, the most manageable possible in order to justify themselves. And what Jesus here is saying is, unless you can see what the original intent of that law actually was, your righteousness is going to be as equally shallow as the Pharisees, and it will be as equally inadequate to enter into my kingdom. So how did the Pharisees reduce this law? 
I mean, because after all, don't the Ten Commandments say, clearly specify, you shall not kill? Well, it, it's subtle what they did here, but it's very telling that, that what the Pharisees did is they reduced the law against killing and defined it as murder only. Essentially, intentional first-degree murder. Because you notice the original command back in Genesis chapter 20 is you shall not kill, right? But the Pharisees changed it to you shall not murder, which did two things. First of all, it absolved them of any guilt regarding this command because, hey, I haven't murdered anybody, so I must be okay. But then secondly, by doing that, it reduced the Old Testament punishment for killing from death, God had said he'd command it, right? If you kill, you must be put to death. Now it becomes merely a civil or a judicial matter, which isolated them even further from having to deal with God regarding this law. In other words, what they were saying now is, well, yeah, for really bad people out there who murder innocent people, the civil law will rightly condemn them. But that's not an issue for us because we don't murder. Now, before we get into looking at what the original intent of this law actually was, I want you to see that what they had done is they had essentially taken a good law from God, you shall not kill, and they had turned it into a manageable law of man that said, don't murder anybody. And in doing so, they completely missed the point behind the law itself. And, and before we move on, I want you to see how we do this. Um, we all do this all the time. See, I, I am never short-tempered with my wife. I'm just tired and it, you know, comes out that way, right? I, I'm not really worrying here. I've just got some legitimately sucky circumstances going on right now and I've got to deal with it, right? And, and this is what often leads to adultery or the justification of turning to porn. I, 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 was, I was just lonely. You don't know how cold my spouse has been to me. And see, we justify lust and gossip and anger and selfishness all the time in the legitimate name of something else because we've taken the law of God against any and all of these things and we've reduced it to something very, very narrow that, of course, I'm not doing. I'm actually doing something else here. But you see, the law was never meant to be a way of justifying ourselves. It was meant to be an all-encompassing picture of a God that we could never in our sins sufficiently obey and therefore drive us to his mercy for redemption and help. So that's kind of the background. Let's get into a couple of the principles that Jesus shows us here of how the law was originally meant to be interpreted. And, and the first thing we see here is that Jesus says that what really matters, the most important thing, is not the letter of the law, but the spirit behind it. See, the, the law against killing another person had a spirit behind it. And, and it was based on the inherent value that they have as a creature made in God's image. And so it wasn't intended only to prohibit murder, though it certainly included that, but it was meant to encompass all of life. See, Jesus says the command not to kill another human being means that you should not destroy another life by physically robbing it of its life, but you also shouldn't destroy another life by emotionally robbing it of value through anger or to consign it to a relational death with bitterness and unforgiveness, or destroy another person's reputation through gossip and lying, or even to destroy another person's confidence through demeaning language and attitudes. See, Jesus says it, it, it's not just whether their heart is still beating after the attack that matters, it's whether you've destroyed them in any way 
and anger and resentment and bitterness and jealousy. See, these are all the same spirit as that of murder. It's the same spirit because it destroys another person. It robs them of the dignity of being a valued creature made in the very image of God. I mean, even feelings that are tucked away safely inside your heart, things that you would never dare express out loud, Jesus says they reveal the very same spirit. See, contempt, resentment in the heart, being passive-aggressive, saying, yeah, I'll forgive them, but I'm never going to let them close to me again, right? Giving people the silent treatment, hmm. I mean, listen, you guys know this. You don't have to say a thing to convey some form of distance between you and another person. And in the world's eyes, it might be okay to distinguish between merely thinking it and actually saying it. Jesus is not in my kingdom. They both flow from the very same spirit. Listen, I want you to let the gravity of what Jesus is saying here lay heavily upon your heart. When you demean your kids for doing something foolish, I mean, I can still hear my dad saying, what do you think you're doing? Oh, I can still feel that. When you, when you throw cutting remarks at your spouse when you're having a disagreement, and you say, well, you never support me when I feel like that. You always take advantage of me when I open up like that. Even when you guard your own heart by shutting down when that person says something hurtful to you and silently vowing never to speak to them again. Listen, even feeling intimidated when you're around somebody who seems to have their life all together and they're more beautiful than you and more fit than you and have more money than you ever will or more smarts than God has dealt you and then beating yourself up because I'm not as good as. All of these things, Jesus says, flow from the very same spirit that lies beneath the prohibition against killing. You're robbing the full life and value of some person, even if that person is yourself. And these are very common things that we do every day. And we need to take this seriously. Listen, don't get used to these subtle lies. Don't find convenient ways of describing this uh, something less lethal or more palatable than they actually are. Jesus says that the dignity of every human being is such that anything that destroys the life of any one of his precious creatures reveals the heart beneath murder. And then Jesus goes on to describe another common practice in their day. Verse 22, again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And, and Raka was basically a term that meant worthless person and, and expressed things like, you idiot, and several other swear words we won't repeat at the moment. And, and, and it was primarily a legal matter. It may be akin today to what we might call slander. I mean, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 15. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. Notice here that Jesus says all of these horrible sins that we would say, oh, those are bad ones. Where do they come from? They come out of the evil thoughts of the heart. And so he's saying that even having evil thoughts about these things, uh, even slanderous talk about someone else, is being in the same category as adultery and sexual morality and stealing. I mean, let, let's just be real. In 2023 has us living in a season of absolute and utter contempt, right? Contempt is the norm of our culture today. In fact, I think contempt is the currency that runs our culture today. Conservatives have contempt for liberals and vice versa. Racial tensions are creating heightened contempt for whites against blacks. Uh, social tensions are creating temp contempt for 
white males from, well, from everybody else, I guess. Uh, every time you yell at an incompetent driver in front of you, it's an expression of contempt. Holding grudges against your spouse because they did it again is an expression of contempt. That coworker who is perpetually incompetent and making your workload heavier is an expression of contempt. The neighbors who've turned their lawn into an automotive salvage yard reveal expressions of contempt. And you see, Jesus says that nursing these thoughts are the seeds of murder. You know, a sunflower seed isn't a flower yet, it's just a seed, right? You can, it's harmless, you can chew on it, um, you can spit it out, you can feed it to your chickens, but if you nourish it, right? And if you egg it on with water and nutrients, it will grow into a flower. And Jesus says in the very same way, if you nourish these resentful thoughts and egg it on with bitterness and rivalry, it will grow into murder. Listen, killing is more than just murder. And the prohibition against it, it's, an, it's intent from the very beginning was to promote life and dignity and value. As you value each person who's made in the image of God rather than destroying life through diminishing that person in any way. But then Jesus continues with yet another statement. He says, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And you see, I think this is beginning now to deal with the evil thoughts of the heart that have now given way to expression. You're, you're saying it out loud. Uh, this is what we might call abuse. And abuse is the anger of the heart that finds its expression in both actions and words. Uh, and, and this is where the curses that we call down on people, whether in the, they're in the vulgar language of swear words or maybe the more palatable versions of just calling people a fool or maybe even just treating people as if we think they're a fool. Jesus says it puts us in danger of the fire of hell because it's tearing down and demeaning a creature that God has made after his own image. And it's robbing them of their full life. And of course, this brings up the question, is, is anger always wrong? Um, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but we're going to go down it. Um, I mean, how do you particularly reconcile the words that we looked at from Jesus a couple weeks ago in Matthew 23, where he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. And he goes on and on and on, verse after verse, for an entire chapter. He's furious with these guys. Listen, God is often said to be angry all throughout the Bible. And I think it's right for us to be angry at times as well. So what does all this mean? How does this fit together? Listen, righteous anger is always directed against that which destroys something that God has created. Because God has made things that beautifully reflect his glory. And when they're destroyed, it's right to be angry about that. It's destroying his image. It's taking away from reflections of his beauty. And even more so when something destroys those creatures that are made in his very likeness, mankind, it reveals his greatest anger. And so for God, anything that destroys his beautiful creation incites him to anger. He hates it. In fact, he hates it so much that he actually came down to earth to rescue his image bearers from their own self-inflicted destruction, to kill the thing that was killing us so that we could once again reflect his beauty. And so it makes sense that he would hate the lies of the Pharisees who were saying that, no, 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 this whole rescue can take place by your own efforts, by being really good, by trying harder. 
and then disguising it as orthodox religion. When he knows full well that the only thing that actually can rescue us is his grace of living and dying for us. And listen, as a result, what this means for us is that it's right to be angry against anything that destroys something that God has created. But, and hear this and hear this well, we are not the creator. We are not the offended party here. God is. And so for us, we have to be able to distinguish between being angry at the sin that causes the brokenness and being angry at the person who's doing it themselves. See, people don't owe us perfection like they do God. And so our anger needs to be limited to the sin and not to the sinner. But here's our problem. By the way, if somebody can go back, the fire alarm and the entryway, just silence alarm. They've been having problems with the battery and it just means the battery isn't working. So that's why that's beeping. But listen, here's the heart of our problem. We are pretty good at fooling ourselves into thinking that our anger is really against the sin when it's actually against the sinner and how they've wronged us. And our reaction uh, then becomes uh, the sin of defending my own glory instead of the righteous anger that God defends, defends his, his glory. So let me just give you some guidelines for um, dealing with and managing your anger. If, you, if you're ever angry against the sinner themselves, it's wrong. You don't have that right. If your anger is contempt for what a person does or says, and it's not anger against the sin itself, but it's really anger at how it makes you look or how it makes you feel, it's wrong. If your anger is condemning another person, that's anger against the sinner and not the sin. And you don't have that right. God does because he has the absolute glory, but you and I don't, and so we don't have that right. And listen, we are always flaring up in anger when people offend us. And, and, and we feel this need to defend ourselves and justify ourselves by getting even, by pointing out all of their wrongs and feeling, well, how could they, right? Or what's wrong with them? Or we flare up uh, with anger when they abuse our cause and we confuse the rightness of our cause with an offense against us. I mean, listen, even if the cause is protecting uh, a life versus abortion, even if the cause is robbing kids of their gender or the anger of destroying the financial livelihood of people with the foolishness of political policies, we have to be able to separate between the cause and, and our own value and supporter uh, of that cause. I mean, sure, we have to fight bad policies, but we have to do it without demeaning the policymaker. And we can't take this stuff personally. It's not you they are offending. It's the cause of righteousness. And you are not the righteous one, God is. And so when, when you do, when you cross that line and you call people a fool and you trash your policymakers and, and you demean the value of those people who oppose our cause, when you bash the LBTQ crowd, there's probably where I'm running out of alphabet, or even when you put the, the, the FBJ bumper stickers on your car, Jesus is saying all of that is still the spirit of murder. Now, that's the first principle that he gives us, right? It's not the letter of the law that matters, but it's the heart, it's the intent, it's the spirit that lies behind it that matters to God. Now, secondly, a second principle we learn here from Jesus is that all of these laws that he gives us 
um, were not only prohibitions, negative commands to try to keep you in line, but they also had positive implications. That is, there are things that you're supposed to do instead uh, in, in their place. See, that's what he's talking about in verses 23 and 24. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. See, Jesus here is saying it's not enough just to keep your anger in check. If you remember a sin against somebody, stop what you're doing and go and be reconciled first. Because it's not just keeping your anger in check that this command is after, but it's also commanding the positive. It's opposite. That is, be reconciled with people. Right? See, not only should we not tear people down and demean them, but we should do everything within our power to be right with them, to be at peace with them. Even those people that we radically disagree with, you simply cannot justify separation and distance from people because their attitude or their cause or their words are hurtful or stupid or even evil. You are commanded to love even your enemies, which we'll get back to in another week. In fact, listen, this is going so far as to say that not only should we not harbor ill will in our hearts toward other people, but we are commanded to replace those harsh thoughts in our head with good, life-giving thoughts toward others. That's how far this command goes. Can you imagine that? We're, we're called not only to put a muzzle on our sharp tongues, and we're called not only to uh, work at controlling our negative thoughts and our bitterness and our resentment toward others, but we are actually called to take steps to remove the cause of the trouble in the first place, if we can, as far as it depends on us. I mean, at least my attitude can be right. We are called to promote life, to promote flourishing, to promote the good, of everybody around us, even those people that our hearts most naturally want to despise. Now, I say as much as possible here because I think this is primarily dealing with how we treat one another as fellow believers. And for non-believers, sometimes there's only so much you can do uh, at dealing with the offense. But we can't simply limit it just to believers because Jesus does go on in this passage to say, as a result, what this means is you even have to love your enemies. So he includes that. Now, let me just give you two implications here real quick of what this means. First of all, we must always look for the positive intent behind every law, beneath every prohibition. See, Jesus says, do not kill, rather promote what brings life. It's not enough just to say, I haven't killed my neighbor. I mean, listen, that's where the whole parable of the Good Samaritan was about. Well, who's my real neighbor, right? And how far do I have to go to promote their good? Right, trying to justify. I, I'm not responsible for that. And Jesus says, no, everybody's your neighbor. And you do whatever it takes to meet their need. Because it's not enough simply not to kill him. You have to do whatever is necessary to bring him life, to bring him flourishing. I mean, listen, this is the call that the church in Acts heard when they generously met every need that they saw. It's what led believers down through the years to establish hospitals and nursing homes and addiction recovery programs and marriage and family counseling and mowing your neighbor's lawn when they can't. Uh, Chaz, keep that in mind. That's um, my neighbor. <clears throat> and, and listen, even for a moment, for, forget that a, abortion is murder. What are you doing to promote the life and the flourishing of that future little baby or even of that confused and scared mother? See, we can't just simply say, I'm against that. What are you for? What are you doing about it? And see, all of this, I think, means that as a church, we simply cannot be content to learn God's truth 
and then try to keep our lives in line and pure and clean as we walk through this world, we actually are called to work for the positive establishment of those truths in our community by mentoring young kids and giving them our love and attention and tutoring them when they need it. We need to be teaching the next generation life skills that bring them up from the dregs of hopeless poverty that is rampant in our culture. And see, this is just one command not to kill. He also goes on to say, don't commit adultery, which means ev you do everything you can to promote healthy marriage relationships. He says, don't steal, but rather do what? Paul says in Ephesians 4, 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those who are in need. That's the positive, right? It's not enough not to steal. What are you doing um, to, to give back to others? See, Jesus says, don't lie, rather speak the truth in love. And on and on and on these commandments go. See, that's our first implication. You must always look for the positive action that lies beneath every prohibition. But then secondly, we really have to work hard to guard against trying to atone for our sins by balancing them by doing something good. Because I think that's what Jesus is getting at in these verses, that God is not interested in you showing up and offering your sacrifices if you haven't done the work of reconciliation first. You simply can't offer some sacrifice to God to make up for the offense somewhere else. You can't just buy God off. Because listen, the Pharisees here, they were in the right place, right? They were in the temple of the God, the right God. And they were doing all the right things. They were offering sacrifices to him. They were praying to God. They were worshiping God. And yet, they were harboring evil in their hearts toward others. And Jesus here is telling us that all the serious attention that they gave to the spiritual obedience was simply a cover for their interior hatred and bigotry and condescension toward people around them. As we saw from Jesus' critique a couple weeks ago in that same chapter, he goes on to say, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. So you cannot fool God with just doing all the right things and having a heart that is filled with bitterness and condescension. And listen, I want you to see just how important this is to God uh, that, that we pursue honest reconciliation with each other because God does something here that's almost, it's almost unthinkable. He says, if, if there is sin in your heart, put even me on hold, God says. Stop your worship and go and deal with your brother first because there's no value in the sacrifice if our hearts are not right first. As the psalmist says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Listen, God will not accept any acts of worship that are given from hearts that are merely using it to cover their need uh, to deal with offenses against other people. And see, the command here is really for us to keep short accounts with one another. And listen, I know when it comes down to it, we are all cowards. We really don't like to confront people. We don't like to deal with relational conflict. We're deeply fearful of having to admit any failure on our part. Most of us are really uncomfortable with the potential drama it might cause, even within your marriage relationship, or the feelings that it might dredge up. We would rather hope that time and, and silence would make it all just go away, or that simply by ignoring it and having a pleasant conversation the next time, we can just all forget that it ever happened. Listen, we love sweeping this kind of potential drama under the rug, but God is clear, and I think he is urgent here, that we must keep short accounts with one another. Or God says, I will not hear your prayers. He will not accept 
our worship. Listen, you want to unleash the stopper of revival in our community? This is where it begins, with honest confession and reconciliation. Otherwise, God says, I will not hear, I will not answer. In fact, I'll shut the door. And when Jesus ends here by saying, deal with your relational issues with one another or else you're going to have to uh, be handed over to the judge, I think what he's telling us here is that the divisions that we have in our relationships not only separate us from each other, but they also separate us from him. And, and so what does all this mean? I think when, when God brings conviction of sin or when he shows you a breach in a relationship, go immediately. See, he says, while you're still together, while you're on the road, seek honest reconciliation as quickly as possible because if you don't, the ultimate judge is gonna demand payment. Listen, married couples, let me just say this to you, do not ever go to sleep at night with unresolved issues between you and your spouse. Don't do it. Even if you gotta stay up all night, don't let it happen because it will fester and it will not only bring division between the two of you, but between you and God. Parents, don't ever let your kids go to sleep without offering that apology for how you acted or maybe overreacted in dealing with them. And kids, don't let unresolved bitterness keep you from seeking healing and relationship with your parents, especially as adult kids dealing with adulter parents. No matter what they did to you, no matter how they treated you, we are responsible for seeking reconciliation in those relationships. Because if we let those kind of things continue to fester, the judge is standing at the door and he will demand full payment from you. And listen, I know that for some of you, this is, no, this, you, you don't understand. This is impossible. You don't understand my circumstances. No, I don't, but God does. And even though it is risky to do something like this, remember the context that Jesus is giving us here. He says, I've come to fulfill the law for you. And, and, and listen, if we're honest, it is always far too risky to attempt any kind of reconciliation if your dignity is on the line here. If your value as a person is at stake here, I don't want to deal with this. If my pride is going to get crushed in this process, mm -mm -mm, we're just going to push this off to another day. And so you have to remember the context here that Jesus has already obeyed on your behalf. So you don't need their justification when you have his. You don't need people to be happy with you when your father is already pleased with you. You don't even need to fear losing your life or your dignity or your pride because you've already died to yourself and found a new life in Jesus. Because you see, listen, outside of Jesus, this stuff is just too risky. You have too much to lose. You might be taken advantage of. Somebody might hurt you even further. But if you've already been rescued from your worst sins, you can be more honest about the little ones with other people. If you've already been forgiven of your greatest debt, then you can risk being the fool and being seen as the weak one in pursuing reconciliation with others. And see, this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus has been describing all along, right? Not proud and boastful, but meek and merciful. Not self-righteous and defensive, but poor in spirit and mourning over sin. Not stirring up trouble to win the argument, to look good and to feel better, but being peacemakers. But I think it's really only possible for citizens of his kingdom for those who have been loved and accepted and forgiven because of Jesus. Otherwise, it's just too risky. There's too much at stake here. Listen, the command is you shall not kill. You mustn't rob the life or the dignity or the value of any person in any way, even in your thoughts. But you must work for their good. You must work for their flourishing. 
I love the sign in Bristol. Let's make this a, a good place. That should be our calling, to make this a great place for everybody. And you can do this because Jesus came first and worked for your good by living the life that you should have lived and dying the death that you deserve to die. And then he gave it all to you. His sacrifice for you makes the sacrifice for others possible. Let's pray. Lord, we admit that we are often very angry and defensive. We want to protect our pride and our dignity. We don't want to look weak or needy. Uh, we don't want to play the victim uh, in this culture where being the victim is the worst thing possible. Lord, I pray that you'd help for us to see that you were willing to take all of that humility on yourself. You were willing to be treated as, as if you were sin for us. You were willing to be treated as if you were guilty for everything that we did, even though you had done nothing wrong. And I pray that as that model not only forgives us, but shows us how to deal with others in a relationship, that you would motivate our hearts from the beauty of what you've done to be able to pursue peace and reconciliation with those around us, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when it's just incredibly painful. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are peacemakers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.